All right, well, at this time, uh, the kids can head out to Children's Church where you guys have a lesson all prepared for you. It's been a fantastic week. Uh, we had a great time at VBS. Uh, I'm, glad it's, I'm glad it's over. I'm always glad when VBS is over because you're here from morning to night for a long time, which is fine. You're here for the kids. Um, I was the one who did the praise and worship and dancing with the kids, and and Amber, who was baptized this morning, decided to post uh, post my dancing on the website uh, up on Facebook. So she's lucky she came back up out of the water. I was uh, really tempted there for a moment. Last week we uh, we were talking about forgiving, about how sin creates a debt. We used the scale and Legos and how we are supposed to forgive as Christ forgave us. Not an easy lesson, uh, how unforgiveness ultimately leads to hate and that forgiveness is not ignorance. It is not forgetting what someone has done, but it is removing the debt that is created when someone sins against us. It's a, uh, not even a necessarily a subtle difference. So this week, I mean, forgiveness is a tough one, but I'm going to be honest, this one's going to be a really tough one, uh, unfortunately, as, a, as Americans. Because it really hits to the, the root of, I don't know, I don't, something's changed in our culture since I was a, a kid in my grandfather's generation. And uh, he, they would have understood. If I had done this sermon then, they would have understood that this is just the way it was supposed to be. But it's something that in our culture we have uh, really lost. And that is the topic of stewardship. We don't have a lot of stewards in our society or even people that we would probably uh, consider functionally stewards. We do have flight attendants, which used to be called stewards and stewardesses. Do you know why they were called that? They were called that because it was their responsibility. When you entered into the airport, you handed your belongings to them. You entrusted them with what was yours, and they committed to taking care of it, moving it, and making sure that it arrived where you were going. In a sense, they were stewards. A steward is someone who is assigned responsibility for that which belongs to someone else and will give an account for that in the end. Uh, if you've ever had your luggage lost, I'm sure you have gone down and given an account to the people the only other thing that I could really come up with that might come close to understanding what it means to be a, a steward would be for those of us that have uh, retirement plans and we have financial advisors. That's what they're called, financial advisors. They're basically just financial stewards. We hand over our financial resources. We hand over our, uh, our, our retirement accounts, all of that stuff, trusting uh, that they are going to manage it in a way that is profitable, in a way that's good that they are not going to take advantage of us. I mean, we, we trust that our interest, they are there and taking it to make us money. That is what a steward is. In the Old Testament, we see stewards a lot. Joseph is probably one of the most famous ones after being sold into slavery into Egypt by his brothers. He was bought by a man named Potiphar, and he took care of Potiphar's house so well that he was appointed steward of the house. Potiphar knew that he could trust him. He knew that whatever he put into his responsibility, whatever he gave to him, Joseph would manage it well. 
So Paul talks about this. Now, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, look at this. This is how one should regard us, talking about us as Christians, as servants of Christ. Let's pause. We should be seen and understood that our role as Christians is to be a servant of Christ, but secondly, stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. So Paul here is saying, your Christianity, we talk a lot about being the servant of Christ. We talk a lot about submission. We talk a lot about surrender. We talk a lot about service. We talk about a lot of these things, but we really don't ever talk about what it means that we are not only servants of Christ, but we are stewards of everything that is his, all of the mysteries of God. We are stewards of them. What that means is, is that all of the mysteries of God have been placed within our care. And we've got to be responsible with it. You, if you are a Christian, you have been given the words of life, the words of salvation, the message of transformation, of power. A spirit placed within you and spiritual gifts empowered in you to do the work that Christ was doing in this world. There is a mystery that you are carrying inside of you. How are you stewarding? doing with it. So there's a couple of principles that we need to really just get to. So four principles I want to remind us of. I think we know these in the back of our head, uh, but they don't always translate down into our hearts, right? There's a lot of things about Jesus we know to be true, but we don't necessarily accept to be true. Does that make sense? It doesn't translate from thought to The first thing is this. I want us to realize, remember, God created everything and owns everything. God created everything and owns everything. This is kind of a a hard one for us to swallow as bootstrappy Americans. We know that hard work and self-discipline produces. We, I, I get that. I'm not, I'm not contradicting. What I'm challenging here is the thought that our work and our effort produces something that then becomes ours. It is not. Paul says it this way in Colossians 1.16. He says, for by him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominion or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. All matter, all existence, all life was not only made by him, but he retains ownership. It's his. This is where it gets kind of hard because we sit here and we think, man, if I go out, I mean, let's get, let's get ridiculous. I go out 
and I make, I get, I get stones, and I get sticks, and I make my own axe, and I go and chop down my own tree, and I use my own tools that I made with my own hands, and I make perfect forge, and I build a house for me to live in. See, in our minds, that is our house. We built it. Your effort doesn't give you ownership over that which you created. Tough mindset to get into. But it's really where we have to get to in order to understand what we're supposed to be doing as Christians as stewards of these mysteries of God. Second thing is this. Now this is oh, these are so encouraging. Right? Look, everything you have, all of it, comes from God and remains in him. All of it. Yeah, but but I went and worked 40, 60, 80 hours. I earned that paycheck. You did so with the breath of life that God gave you, with the body that he formed in the earth that he established according to the rules that he made. Without any of those things, you have no Everything in this life comes from him. John says it this way. John the Baptist says it in three in John uh, three twenty seven. He says he says a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given from heaven. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given from heaven. And Job, in Job uh, chapter 1, the very beginning, as he's going through his suffering, in, in verse 21, he, he proclaims, Naked I came into this world, and naked I will leave it. The Lord gave, and the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job recognizes ultimately as he's suffering, and he is a good man. He, he really is, he's not a wicked man that deserves punishment. In fact, everyone's going, why is God punishing this guy? It doesn't make any sense to them. And yet in the midst of it, he says, well, what, it, what is due me? I came into the world naked. I had nothing. I wasn't even aware of my own existence. And I will leave the exact same way I came in, taking nothing with me. Ultimately, what do I have? Everything I have is borrowed. And if it is borrowed, then the ownership is retained by the one who lent it. Thirdly, God has given you and I, all of us, the responsibility to faithfully manage what is his. And we were created for this purpose. This was his intention from the beginning, is that he would give to you and you would be a steward of that which was his. So in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. God created all of heaven. It's his. But he hands it over to Adam and says, I'm letting you take care of this on my behalf. Now go tend it, work it, keep it. From the very beginning, we were intended only and merely to be stewards. 
In 1 Peter 4.10, Peter says this about us as Christians. He says, as each has received a gift, talking about the spiritual gifts that come from the Holy Spirit living inside of us. He says, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. God has established in you powers and gifts that have come from on high. Gifts that you have that others do not. That he has spread out as he sees fit. And Peter says we have a responsibility to use those gifts to serve one another. To serve this world. To do the ministry of Jesus. And we have that responsibility because we are stewards. Not merely servants. And lastly, this is the most uncomfortable of all, right? What matters is how you handle what he has given you. Remember the very first passage, Paul says, it is required of a steward. He says we are stewards of God's grace, uh, of God's uh, mystery, and it is required that a steward be found faithful. And I want to tell you, uh, we're not going to read it here. I want you to read it later. It's just it's one of my favorite of, of Jesus' parables. But I think Paul is directly referring back to uh, what we call Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 30, which is referred to as the parable of the talents, which specifically is a parable of stewardship, where God goes to one man and he gives him 5,000 talents, talents being money. He gives him 5,000 talents to another man. He gives two to another. He gives one and he leaves. He entrusts his household to these three men. He takes what is his and places it in their care. But the key of this, of this passage is what faithfulness looks like. What does it mean to be faithful to the mysteries of God? Well, when, this, when the master comes back, it says that the one who had five had changed it into ten. The one that had two had changed it into four. And the one that had one brought back exactly the one he had given. He hadn't lost a dime. Not one. He had lost nothing. 1,000 he was given to watch over, and 1,000 he returned. But the one who had five and returned ten, he was praised. Not because he had ten, but because he had been faithful in his oversight. The one that had two, that brought back four, was found faithful. Not because he had four, but because he had been found faithful faithful. The one who returned exactly what he had been given was called a wicked and lazy servant. He was found unfaithful. Why? Because the faithfulness is what you do as a steward with that which God has given you. So what matters? Paul says, referring back to this passage where Jesus says, it's it's that simple. He says, even those that have will be taken away from you, thrown outside. Huh? But the whole point here is that uh, there's a reality that everything we have is God's. It is on loan. And we answer for what we do, how we use it, what kind of a life we choose to live. So if stewardship... Uh, if, if, if these are the understandings we've got to go into to go into these, these, these three points, because these are the three things that um, uh, we need uh, 
these qualities that we've got to have in order to be really good stewards. We know what it means to be stewards. It means to take care of, of that which God has entrusted with us. So what qualities go with a good steward? Because we don't want to be a bad steward. You can be a bad steward. You're a steward. You are handed stuff. Are you a bad one or a good one? Well, let's look at what a good one does. The first quality of a good steward is this. It's contentment. Humanity has a condition. God built us with something called ambition. You are built with that. Ambition is good. The desire to build, the desire to create. We are like God in that, in, in that we, are, we are called to work and to achieve. We want to make things, and that's good. But after the fall, when sin came into the world, greed joined ambition. And now we were no longer creating, we were creating for us. We were no longer gathering, we were gathering for ourselves. We were no longer taking, we were taking for ourselves. And we became consumers of this world, no longer caretakers. We were no longer doing the work or being stewards of what God had provided for us. We were now consumers of what God had provided for us. And it's two completely different mentalities. We are not here to consume, and yet that is, that's just all that is inside of our mind. We want more. We need faster internet, faster phones. We need, we need more, better, more exciting, more entertainment, more access, more, 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 everything. I don't care what it is. You need more of it. It's all we want, more. We're never satisfied because, because the desire and the ambition that God created us with us, created inside of us, has been paired now with greed. So we go after it, never satisfied. Look, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon says this in chapter 5, verse 10, he who loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. What is not enough? Not enough is what I'm missing. That's how we define it. It's what I don't have. So everything that I don't have that I get, does it change the fact that there are things that I don't have? No, it does not. It merely shifts my attention to something else I do not have. This is why Solomon says it is meaningless. It is vanity, the chasing of the wind. You can never catch it. And whatever little bit you get, it isn't enough. It's foolishness. You want to be wealthy. What is wealthy? Wealthy is more than you have. That's how we look at it. Rich is more than you are. And so you want to be rich, you are Never rich. Want to have enough? There is never enough. It's meaningless. The reason it's meaningless is because one of the principles we started with, you're chasing after things that aren't even yours. You can't possess them. They're going to fade. They're going to be taken from you going to lose it all anyway. It's not yours. And most of the pain of this life 
He's just, we get old. I'm just going to be, I'm, I'm getting older and my body isn't doing the things it used to do. It, it just isn't. I, I mean, my back, my knees, I don't know. I look at myself and I, I'm, only, I, I'm 45 and I'm going, oh my goodness, this, I'm a train wreck already. What is it going to be like in 20 years? This is bad. This body is just borrowed, isn't it? It's not mine. So life becomes miserable because we're constantly looking at what we're losing. But what is loss? Loss is having something that is taken away from you. We don't own anything. So if my body doesn't do what it used to do, I have lost nothing. I've lost nothing. Misery in this life comes because we try to grab a hold of things that aren't ours. And then when we can't hold on to them, we question God, why would you do this to me? Why would you allow this to happen? It's not ours. That's why Solomon says it's meaningless. Chasing after this stuff is meaningless. In 1 Timothy 6, 7-8, Paul echoes the words of uh, Job. He says, for we brought nothing into this world. We can take nothing out of it. But if we had food and clothing, with this we'll be content. Paul sets a rough standard. Here it is. You ready? Here's contentment. Don't be naked and eat. Don't starve. There you go. Other than that, Everything else is one. He just lays it out. I mean, you can't get any more simple than that. It's interesting. Do you know Jesus only owned one thing? Only one thing did he own. Do you know what it was? His clothes. He owned his clothes. But even then, when he died. That's part of the significance, guys. What happened to his clothes? They were torn into four pieces and distributed among other people. They weren't even used for clothes. And that was taken. But Christ, when he walked, he was content to eat and content to have clothes. It's a hard standard, but that's really it. We need to learn to be content with what we have. What we have is exactly Hebrews 13, 5, Paul says this, keep your life free, or Paul or whoever the writer was, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And this is the key to contentment. You either desire money or you desire God. Simple. Jesus said it that way. You cannot serve both God and money. It's one or the other. It's, it, it, and what he means by it, it's bigger than money. It's either this life or it's the next. Which do you want? And when you have God, you have enough. You don't need anything else. He will provide all that you need. Seek first his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. God knows what we need, he, and he has provided. Wanting more actually hurts us more than learning to be content. 
I think of the image of a, of a, of a man who, whose boat went down. I'm making this up in my head, so I apologize if it's a bad analogy. But I see in my head a, a man whose boats went down. Everyone else has died. But there's a, a, a dinghy sitting there, and he, he finds, he, he struggles, and he gets to it, and he's holding on to it. He climbs his way up, and he is surviving. He is staying on that thing, holding as tight as he can, and he won't let go because he knows the moment he lets go, he's going to fall into the water, and he's going to drown, and he's going to die. He knows it's going to happen, but a boat happens by. And on that boat, a captain sees him. The captain steers the boat over to him, comes outside, grabs the life preserver, throws it out to him. It lands next to the man. He is clinging to that shaky, rocky dinghy. There's the lifeline right there. But he has held on so long, this dinghy has made him safe so long the thought of letting go of it terrifies him but it is required not optional the only way to live is by letting go and grabbing the lifeline being pulled safely securely he does what so many Now holding on to both, he's actually in the water. He's in the most precarious situation that he's ever been in. And he feels less safe than he did when he was holding on to the dinghy. He only feels less safe, not because the dinghy is making him more safe, but because he refuses to fully trust the captain. He will only find security when he lets go completely. Only if we let go completely of this world can we actually find the in grabbing a hold of God, this God who will give you everything and provide for you everything that you need. And that's where contentment is found. Let go of this world. Do not be attached. Which leads us to the second thing. Uh, oh boy, fun. Here we go. Frugality. There is a biblical principle for being frugal. I gotta be. I got. I, let me. Let me. Let me qualify this because my wife will tell you I'm miserly. Miserly is not frugal. Frugal is not miserly. Miserly is a person who will not spend a dime because they are desperately trying to secure their future by holding on to as much money as they can. I think of my grandfather. He wouldn't spend a dime on anything. He would. He didn't want to buy a new truck, a new car. He didn't go out to eat. He didn't do anything. And when he died, there's a million dollars sitting in the bank. What for? But he was. He was miserly, man. He held on to every dime, scrimped and saved everything he could. But here's the point: being miserly doesn't put the resources to good use. Frugality takes what you have and makes sure that you are getting the most out of it. It's getting the most traction, the most use, the most bang for your buck, if you will. It is accomplishing the most possible. We are supposed to be frugal. So in Proverbs 21.20, it says, Precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours them. 
A foolish man is just consume, 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 consume. But the frugal man actually has. He holds on to. Most people in this country live paycheck to paycheck, and it is not because our wages are not high enough. It is because we refuse to live frugally. We will not be content with what we have, and we will buy everything that we can. Maybe the phone, the newest, whatever it is, we will go after it. And we live paycheck to paycheck, and then we are trapped. I couldn't believe I found this. I never saw this before. Jesus feeds the 5,000, right? He took some loaves and some fish and turned it into, just just miraculously turned it into enough food to feed 5,000 people. That's kind of cool, right? But look, here's, I never noticed this before. Here's what it says. Here's what it says next um, in John 6, verse 12. And when they had eaten their full, Jesus told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. Wait a minute. The man who could take a loaf of bread and magically, miraculously explode it into enough bread to feed 5,000 people is worried about the leftovers. Why? I mean, most of us would be like, would be like, oh, don't worry about it, man. Just bring one loaf, and we'll be good. I'll, I'll take, I'll, I'll multiply it later. No, Jesus says, hey, pick all that up. We're not wasting it. Why? Because he understood the, this miracle was a blessing of God. It was something that God had done, and he was not going to waste the miracle of God. He was not going to abuse it. He wasn't going to act like it was just, he wasn't going to even take it for granted. He was going to appreciate every aspect, every part of that blessing, and every drop, every piece of that bread, of those fish, was going to be used. That's frugal. And this is the guy that had the access to make all he wanted. understand that what we have isn't ours. When we understand that we are stewards, we are simply holding on to what is God's, then we are able to ask ourselves, is something worth having? Do I need this? What is the purpose behind having it? Hey, uh, if you've ever... (laughs) You ever seen Compassion International, World Vision, any of these groups that come out and, 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 and get people to donate $30, $35, $40 a month to feed a starving child in another country? We all know this, right? What is their slogan? For the price of a cup of coffee, you could feed a child, a starving child across the world. What's their point? What are they trying to get you to do? They're trying to get you to examine where your resources are going and if they are being used in a way, being used in the best way they can be. They're asking you to be frugal. Consider, is your coffee worth this child's starvation? Now, you may, sometimes I find that, sometimes it feels unfair, but 
the reality is when you look at the life of Jesus and you look at his teachings, it's very clear. It's there. What you have isn't yours. What you have doesn't belong to you, and when you answer for it, what are we doing? Now, I can't, I can't buy a $150 pair of jeans. I've said this before. Maybe you can't. I can't do it. I'm going to go to Walmart. I'm going to take my kids. They're like, hey, how about the $50 pair of jeans? Dude, there's 35, 34, 27, 27, right there it is, $27 pair of jeans. Go pick one out. I'm, I'm just, I, I can't do it. But if I go and buy shoes, well, I'll spend $70 to $100 on a pair of shoes. Not could easily get a $20 pair of shoes, but there's a reason. It's not because I'm interested in whether you like my shoes or not. That's meaningless to me. But after having worn shoes for 40 years, I realized the $20 pair of shoes don't last as long as the more expensive shoes. And if I buy the cheaper shoes, I'm actually using more money than if I bought the nicer shoes. The nicer shoes would last longer, and I would actually save money in the long run. So that's frugalness. You sit there and you process out. How am I using what I have? How am I putting this together? Now, maybe you're sitting there and saying, you know what? But a $150 pair of jeans lasts longer than the 27 Yeah, that's if you care about holes. I don't care about holes. I'll wear holes all over my pants. I don't, well, I don't care. Frugality. Asking ourselves, weighing out things. Is this needed? And it's not about trying to justify yourself to God. It really is just about learning to, to weigh it out. Frugality is about divorcing yourself from the things that you, quote-unquote, deserve. And if you don't realize it, that is why every, adver every advertisement is telling you you deserve something. Because they are trying to tap into that sense of, of ownership, of consumerism, of trying to get you to, to hunger and desire to possess something. Every advertisement telling you you deserve better, you need better, uh, you need faster, higher, whatever it is. Frugality. Last one. This is a key. Oh, Jen, I, I miss when we first got married, people, it, it, it's funny, you want to talk about uh, uh, contentment, frugality, and stuff. There are people who say, well, you shouldn't get married until you're financially ready. When is that? That's just like, that's just like rich. When am I financially ready to be married? I don't think I am now. Are we, are we there yet? No, it hasn't, it hasn't happened. We're just doing this together. I miss when we got married, every piece that we own fit with us in a 1990 Chevy Cavalier two-door car. Everything we owned. We needed to go somewhere. We're gone. We don't own a house. We don't have to go. We don't have to save up to rent a truck. We just put everything in the back seat and we go. We were free. started buying homes and things and taking loans, and each one of those things ties us a little bit more to this world, 
Moving now, switching jobs is an ordeal. A miserable ordeal. You have to pack up. I mean, it's just, it's just, you, listen, here, here, here's, here, here, here's the truth. Stuff, having stuff means having to take care of stuff. Having stuff means having to fix stuff with more stuff. And having stuff means protecting stuff. I own a house. I have to play doctor to this house. It, it, it's, it loses shingles. You got You got to replace the roof. The heating goes out. You got to replace the heater. It floods. You've got to tear out the walls and get. I mean, whatever it is, it, it's like an entity that you become the servant of. It. You don't possess it. It possesses you. And it tethers you to this world. It ties you. I'm not saying don't own a house. I mean, that's fine. I mean, what, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say is that the, the simpler we live, the less attached to this world we are. But when I have stuff, I have to, I have to get stuff to make that stuff better. The paint comes off. I've got to buy paint to put back on the walls. Something breaks. I've got to buy it to replace it. I'm, I'm constantly throwing money at the thing I bought. Same thing with cars. Same thing with everything. And then I've got to protect it. So I've got to get motion lights, and then I'm, and then I'm doing all kinds of other things. I'm, I'm going ADT, getting some sort of security system to protect my stuff. Throwing more stuff at my stuff so I can keep my stuff until I'm dead, and then everyone else just either throws away my stuff or sells my stuff. What are we, what are we doing? That's what stuff does. It just ties us. That, keep that in mind. Listen, we're going to read this passage. That is exactly what Jesus means when he says this. In Matthew chapter 6, 19 and 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Pause. Stop right there for a second. What is he saying? This isn't. This isn't a greed lesson. He's not talking about greed. He's talking about simplicity. What you have here, you've got to constantly be working for. Build something here, it's going to be breaking down. You've got to keep keeping it up. If I walk away from my house, don't do anything. It's going to collapse eventually. I have to keep working on it to keep it alive. I like the moth. I like the moth thing because you, you got to pay terminates or pay someone to come in and. Kill the bugs. You got to do it here at church. That's why there's dead bugs everywhere all the time. I don't know where these things come from. I, I, I mean, but they love this church. They're all needing saved or something. Rust destroys. But then he says, he said, and here's the protection one, right? We got to protect our. We got. We got. We got to take care of our homes to keep us healthy. And he says, look, when when your values here, you, you, thieves break in and steal. You got to protect yourself. He's saying exactly what I'm saying is that the more complicated your life is here, the less free, the less happy, the less peaceful you actually are. So here's, here's the solution. He says, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where the thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The less I claim as mine, the less I have to possess. The less I claim as mine, the less I have to have. 
less I have, the more free I am, the less tied I am to this world. I mean, that's why, that's why Paul, he, he specifically says, I, he, doesn't, he wishes that we wouldn't get married because he says marriage is like, that's a tie to this world. You get tethered to this world. He says it'd be better if you didn't. He doesn't begrudge us for being married, but he says it's better not to. Why? Because it's one less attachment. The attachments to this world are what keep us from doing and being and, and achieving what it is that God wants us to. We are so tied to the ministry of the things of this world that we are not able to minister uh, to the people of this world. And that's what he is getting at. Whatever you hold on to in this life only complicates your life. And the more you fight for it, the worse it gets. This is like a demotivational speech or something. It feels kind of demotivational. Don't try at all. No, I'm not, no, we're not saying that. I remember being in fifth grade, been made fun of all my life. Always outcast. And the last day of school, we were having a picnic outside. And a kid came up to me. One of that one of the jocks came up to me. And, and he comes up with a banana. And he opens the banana. And he hands it to me. Now, it's never good when people hand you bananas. He says, listen, you will be cool. And you will be one of us. If you take this banana, go over to, I can't remember her name. And he smushed it all through. She had long blonde hair. He just smushed it all up in her hair. Do that. so desperately wanted to. I grabbed that banana. I didn't wait a second. I went flying across that playground. And with the force of a fat fifth grader, smushed that all up through her hair as much as I could. She squealed and screamed, and I turned around, and all of the guys that had put me up to her just laughed. And I got a smile on my face. I was so excited. I went walking back. I realized they weren't laughing at her. They were laughing because they had been able to manipulate me into doing what they wanted. And as I came up, the guy that handed me the banana looked at me and he said, you will stay cool. You will never be one of us. When ions fell into this world and didn't pass. So I was trying. It was my ego. I wanted to belong. I wanted to fit in. I wanted to whatever it was. I didn't want people to think poorly of me. Do you know when I, the freedom came, and, and funny thing is, you ask any class clown, any class clown in here knows how you stop bullying, how you stop people from making fun of you, how you make, how you make people stop insulting you. Quickest way is you beat them to it. You self-deprecate make fun of yourself. You don't worry about your ego anymore. When you don't worry about their ego, they don't feel the need to attack it. That's the weird thing. So I stopped worrying about it. I stopped because the more I protected my ego and my feelings, the more I protected them, the more they came after me. The more I held on to this, the more hurt I became. So many of us spend so much of our life, now in a, in a broader, bigger sense, we spend so much of our life trying to please 
the people around us. I mean, I've, I've been through that. I've been through the people-pleasing stage, too, where, no, someone's not going to, I'm not trying to be cool in someone's eyes, but, but I am worried about how they perceive me. And so, and so, you know, if, if someone has the wrong opinion of me or, they, or they've heard a rumor about me that isn't true, I feel the need to go and fix it with them. And, and no, no, that isn't true. And, and I mean, if, there were points where if I was in a room with 20 people, I had 20 opinions to manage. During, that's miserable, being in a room of people and, and feeling like you've got to manage all these opinions that they've got of you and you've got to make sure that everyone sees you okay. That's not freedom. So I don't care. I stopped. I stopped worrying about it. I don't think that's a shock to a lot of people here. I mean, two weeks ago, I came in here and I showed you sparkly rainbow pants that I wear at the house. Later that day, Anna came by and I was in her and she goes, oh, wow, you actually wear those. Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't joking. And I had people, I mean, I heard, I heard some guffaws and I know there were some people not very happy. But I'm going to tell you this, I don't care. I love them. I don't care if you think that makes me whatever you think it makes me. I don't care. It's your business. I'm not here to manage your opinion. There is one opinion in this world that I care about. And it's Christ's opinion. The only person I want to hear say, well done and good. If I end this life and every person calls me a failure, but he smiles and is pleased with me, that's all I want. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't care about you, and it doesn't mean that your opinions don't matter. No, they do, because I want to please him, and I need your help to do that. I can't do that on my own. So if you see me doing something that is wrong, I need you to come and talk to me. I need you to help me see that, because you know, I'm telling you, my desire is to please Christ. I need everyone to help me do that. So if you are helping me try to understand how I can, how I can please Jesus better, I want to hear that. But if you want to tell me that you don't like my shoes, uh, if I don't, if I don't stop wearing this brand of shoes, we're no longer friends. See ya. Don't care. Simplicity. When we, it's not just none of this is all about. This is only about money. This is about everything. Your life, your reputation, your name, your family, your children, your home, your retirement, your money. Possessions, your job, none of it is ours. Not even my own opinion. None of it. They are passing through this world in my arms. They're not mine. They're his. And I will answer for what I have done with them. Paul says it this way, just absolutely gorgeous. 1 Corinthians 2.2, last scripture. Paul was having problems with the Corinthians. They didn't like him. They were mouthing off when he wasn't there. He said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He says, when I came, when I, when I came to you, only one thing on my mind was, Nothing else matters. Not what people say, not what they think, not what I have, not whether it's going to be taken away from me, if, if I'm being sued for being a Christian, which that's happening to people in this country. I mean, whatever. None of it's ours. 
all that matters is whether we know Jesus. And that makes life a lot simpler, doesn't it? I don't have to ask myself, do I need this item? Just ask myself, do I need Jesus? How can I use this for Christ? Answer those questions. Put it towards Jesus. I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect, Adam. Jimmy will tell you, I buy all kinds of weird things for my kids. That doesn't mean that I'm Our failures can be good tools. doesn't mean that we're not called to be good tools. So once again, I'm going to close like this. Sometimes I do sermons, and they sound like they're downer. But when you stop and you actually consider what Christ is saying, it is freedom. It is freedom that he is offering it is, it is being able to no longer be tethered to the whims and the desires and the opinions of this world, to no longer be controlled by the things that we have, no longer having to protect what is ours, no longer having to be always on the defensive against life itself. We are cut free from those things. We don't have to hold on to the dinghy and the life preserver sitting there floating in the middle, not really feeling safe. We can let go and actually be free. That is not a downer message. What Christ is calling us to come and be free. He will give you all of guys that are Christians here, you you have been entrusted with the ministry of Jesus, with the Holy Spirit in you, and it is required that we be found faithful. Christ is calling anyone here who has never put their trust in Christ. He's he's calling you, he's challenging you, he's, he's, he's saying, let me set you free. stand. We're going to sing our song of invitation.